It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. Very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now we begin with the pandemic. Of course, 10 million people in Britain have received their first dose of a vaccine. Speaking yesterday, England's chief medical officer, Chris Whitty, said we're now past the peak of this second virus wave with infections, deaths and hospital admissions all coming down. Yeah, that said, though, the Prime Minister warning that COVID cases remain too high to see restrictions eased at the moment. And I mean, if you look at the figures, that's pretty plain to see. Uh, we've been below 20,000 the last few days, but the deaths, I think above 1,300 yesterday, so still very high. Uh, and as such, schools still won't start reopening until the 8th of March at the earliest. Uh, Chris Whitty saying it's vital we get those case numbers down first. We were managing to hold the line with schools open before we got the new variant in England. The rates are now coming down, but they're still incredibly high. And if we were to start to take off again from the very high levels we are at the moment, the NHS would get back into trouble. And that comes as Oxford University starts a trial to combine the vaccines from AstraZeneca and Pfizer to see if those two doses of different vaccines are better or worse off than using the same product for both. So could mix and match be on the agenda, Roger? Well, a lot of a lot of threads to pull together in terms of where we are in terms of the crisis right now. Joining us to talk about some of this is Tom Randall, who's Conservative MP for Gedling. Tom, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. Um, there's a lot of pressure at the moment on Boris Johnson uh, on various sides, but one number of Conservative backbenchers I know want an earlier move towards reopening schools, reopening the economy. Uh, we saw this morning uh, reported that Rishi Sunak is complaining that the uh, medical advisers are moving the goalposts in terms of these things. I, I just want to ask, Tom, if, what, where you stand on this. Are you one of those who wants to see an earlier reopening now that we seem to have passed the peak of the first wave, second wave? Well, no, I, nobody wants this situation that we're in to persist for any longer than it has to um you know i would love i'd love the shops to be open tomorrow i'd love you know the the pubs to be open the restaurants to be open tomorrow um that's what i'd yeah, i'd love to happen i think everyone who's um in this process who's who's making decisions on this uh, would love would love these things to happen as soon as they can but i do think there has to be some uh, realism about you know the fact that these things have to be done in a safe way and they have to be done very carefully. Um, we've we've relaxed restrictions at some points over the last year as and when we've been able to do so, but we've then had to tighten them up, tighten them up, particularly after we've had the new variant which came out, uh, you know, which 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 became apparent late last year. So 
uh, from my own perspective, um, I, I just think we have to be guided by the advice on this. And as much as I hate the fact that we're in this situation that we have been in for the last year, um, we've, we, we've got to take the steps necessary to stop the spread of the disease. Um, and, mm. it, and, and those steps have to be taken, sadly. So, so yeah, I, I, I think just from my own perspective, taking it day by day and just trying to get those numbers down. As you were saying on your, your report just there, we've had a good... You know, we've had some good news recently with a 10 million jab and from a speaking as a as a constituency MP who's been getting a lot of uh, people's problems, understandably, over the last year. You know, I've now had some really good emails come in from people who said, you know, I've had the vaccination. Um, it's, I feel really good about myself now. I, I you know it feels like um, I'm much more confident going out. So that's that's yeah. good. And I'm hoping that, that will continue over the next couple of months. So, so, so broadly speaking, then, in terms of opening schools, we shouldn't be looking at a date before the 8th of March to be doing that. Well, I think that's the date that um, that has been given to, you know, the, the earliest date. And I'm uh, look, I'm very I, I want schools to be reopened, um, you know, as soon as they can be, um, because I'm very conscious of the fact that, you know, one one day that a child is out of school is a day of lost education, which at an early stage particularly is is, is really um, damaging, but I think they have to be done in a safe way, and I, I think so the government's advice on that and the government's thinking on that is, I think, correct. But what about the damage to the economy as well as everything else? Mm-hmm. Because uh, the longer it goes on, there's a sense that that this is it gets mm-hmm. worse. And uh, this line about moving goalposts, I think, posts, I think, is interesting because you say we'll follow the science, yes, but scientists say different things. And uh, the Daily Telegraph mm-hmm. saying that Rishi Sunak fears scientific advisors are, are changing from from how, the original target of protecting the NHS and saving lives mm-hmm. uh, to a focus on getting case numbers down. So you kind of pick your science, don't you? Yeah, I think what we've seen over the last year is, you know, a a disease that can spread very quickly. And when it does spread, um, the effects of that are are very damaging. And I don't want to be in a position where we've got hospital capacity, um, you know, which which is being overwhelmed. Or, um, you know, I get I hear the stories of people who've had, you know, operations cancelled and so forth because, you know, all the resources are being diverted towards. Um, uh, you know, try, trying to accommodate COVID patients in hospitals. These these are very difficult circumstances to manage, and so I do think um, that the the focus on actually containing the spread of the disease so that uh, you know the, the health services and, and other apparatus of the state aren't overwhelmed by this. And this is not a you know this is not a unique position to the UK. This is what we've seen on the continent as well and, and across the world. Um, but I do think it's important that we, we have a focus on trying to do that, um, you know, because otherwise, you know, the, the, I think the consequences of not doing that are, are going to be really serious indeed. So, um, yeah, I want to get, you know, the economy back up and running, um, uh, you know, as soon as possible. Um, but I think the consequences of not managing the spread of this disease um, will be unimaginable, I think. Yeah, and I mean, speaking of managing the spread, what about things further afield? Europe clearly having difficulties mm-hmm. with its vaccine rollout. Should Britain be sending mm-hmm. supplies to Europe while we're also going ahead with our with our rollout? Uh, well, uh, you know, if we've got the capacity to do so, then, and I think the government has said that, you know, we should be, you know, we should be generous in our approach, and I see no reason why we shouldn't be. Um, you know, uh, uh, generous in, in, try, in trying to help others. If we're able, you know, as, as if we're able to also vaccinate 
um, you know, our own population. There's been suggestions, for example, that we should um, help help to vaccinate Ireland, for instance, mm. and I think that's a very commendable goal, which I would I would support um, in terms of um, you know help, taking a common immunity approach uh, to, to the UK and Ireland. I think that's that's something that would be um, would would be supportable, and and also you know in in other countries as well, not just in Europe, but 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 further afield. Um, yeah. You know, once we get once we get through this, and we want to sort of reopen the economy, and people are going to be travelling again, then it's obviously in all our interest to make sure that that the level of disease is down, not just in the UK and Europe, but but further afield as well. So, um, yes, we've got a we've got a good vaccination program in the UK. We need to press on with that. But yeah, definitely, I think there's there is scope to to look, to look beyond that as well. Sure. Tom, let me ask you, though, you mentioned Ireland and Europe, of course, and all this, and, and one of the uh, issues that, that's come up peripherally to this has been a testing of the Brexit rules, Northern Ireland difficulty suggesting, even Michael Gove acknowledging mm-hmm. yesterday, that they're not just teething problems. Um, should the government really have been a bit more honest about the kind of problems this deal that they negotiated was likely to throw up? Yeah, I think some of it, you know, this is this is a new situation. We're kind of within a month, aren't we, of having this the, the final deal with the EU. I, I sort of, part of me thinks that let's just try and let things sort of bed down a little bit. I mean, we've 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 given we've we've started this new arrangement uh, with the with the EU, which is a fantastic deal, which you know a lot of people didn't think was possible, but but it's it started in very difficult circumstances in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I just sort of think some of this perhaps just let's. If some of this will bed down, and there have been some issues, I know, but we've just come trying to try and work through them, I think, um, and see where we are in, you know, in, in a few months' time, um, and hopefully a lot of these issues will, will have ironed themselves out, hopefully. Okay, I've got to ask you about another issue. I mean, you were one of those red wall seats that flipped at mm. the last election, uh, knocking out Vernon Coker uh, of Labour. Mm-hmm. There was this document that you will have seen yesterday from The Guardian suggesting that these sorts of seats can be won back by Labour if they're dressed smartly, if they show a certain level of patriotism. What's your take on that as somebody who's, who's taken one of these seats themselves? Well, I'm just slightly bemused by the whole thing. I have to say. I mean, I've never, I've never had to have a, a document from my party leader to tell me to put a suit on in the morning. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, loving Ron's country, um, believing in, um, you know, Korean country and things. I mean, these are things either you believe in or you don't believe in. I, I think having a document that tells you to believe in these things. Um, seems a little bit false. It just seems a bit peculiar to me. I, I'm not quite sure where they're coming from on that. Um, but I mean, obviously, what I would say there is, you know, looking back to my experiences in the election campaign um, in 2019, I think there was, you know, they've certainly they've certainly identified the problem in that I think there was a strong feeling that the Labour Party and the Jeremy Corbyn, you know, wasn't a wasn't a, a, a party that was speaking to. Um, you know, ordinary voters, particularly here in Gedling, um, in Nottinghamshire. Um, so, you know, they've identified, identified the problem, whether, whether, whether what, what they've suggested is actually the solution, I, I don't know. Mm. I mean, if, if they did it, would you feel threatened if a, mm. a Labour candidate you're up against uh, was flying a union jack and, and all that? Would that change things for you? Well, I've always believed that the Union Jack is for everybody. You know, nobody, this is the flag of our country, and I think it's something that, uh, you know, our national symbols are something that should be uh, used by and enjoyed by, um, you know, people across the board, whether whether they're on the Labour Party or the Conservative Party or whether they have no political party at all. Um, it, it's been the odd situation, I think, where, 
Um, you know, some members in the senior leadership of the Labour Party have, have preferred to fly the flag of Cuba than they have the, the flag of the United Kingdom. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, that's their problem. And I think for me, from sitting where I am, um, our national symbol should be for everyone. And I, 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 I don't understand why people struggle to understand that. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Uh, And Roger, we start with movements on Northern Ireland and Brexit. That's not going anywhere. Well, it's been a difficult one because uh, the UK and the EU have agreed to work, they say, intensively to settle the differences over the Northern Ireland border. Cabinet Office Minister Michael Gove, European Commission Vice President Maros Sefcovic got together, sought to dampen down a controversy which has really threatened to reignite what's one of the most contentious parts of the Brexit deal. It comes after Boris Johnson threatened to suspend parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol due to the disruption that it's causing to trade across the Irish Sea. Yeah, it's only been, what, a month of, uh, of post-Brexit, post-transition period, and we're already starting to see a little bit of, call it teething problems? I don't know, it depends on your view. And here we go, here's a first for you, political reporting. The government is changing the law to allow the Attorney General, Suella Braverman, to go on maternity leave. It comes after the antiquated rules left her facing no choice but to resign if she wants to take off time from work when she gives birth shortly. Uh, there are no provisions in place at the moment for junior uh, ministers to take maternity leave. There is currently no such mechanism for female secretaries of state and law officers. I should say, sorry, there are positions for junior ministers. If you're more senior than that, it becomes a problem. And that is what the government is trying to do. They're trying to legislate around this uh, and make sure that if you're a woman who wants to go on maternity leave and you're in a senior government role, you don't have to resign as a result, which clearly I think we can all agree would be a ridiculous outcome. It does seem extremely archaic and speaks volumes, I guess, about sexism that exists still at the heart of um, the British administration in one form or another. Uh, Meanwhile, 5G, uh, that's back in focus. MPs say the government have got to learn from the security issues which have plagued the building of 5G networks. The House of Commons Science and Technology Committee says ministers should identify new technologies and plan for associated risks. Now, it's all, of course, in response to the rollout of 5G, which saw the firm Huawei, the Chinese company, ultimately excluded from the process on security grounds, leaving the country reliant on only two equipment vendors. And in fact, today, uh, Ofcom has come out against the Chinese TV company, CGTN, uh, saying that they are are not acceptable for having a licence to broadcast here. So that whole issue centrally centralising politics and technology in terms of the relationship between Beijing and London continues to fester. Yep, and of course, if you want to lay a huge amount of infrastructure, you should probably get it right first time and think it through. So glad to see they're, 
Uh, giving a bit of thought to that, let's talk about Labour now. This week, The Guardian revealed that the party is preparing a flag-waving strategy to connect with former Red Wall voters, all about losing or winning over, rather, the people that they lost at the last election. Plays into a wider debate, of course, around identity that's fueled a lot of British politics over the last few years. Uh, joining us to discuss all of this is Paula Surridge. She's Deputy Director of the UK in a Changing Europe and a political sociologist at Bristol University as well. Um, Paula, I mean, you spend a lot of time thinking about this. Is this the sort of thing that you see voters going through or are they more likely to see right through it? I mean, Keir Starmer, he's a Remain voting Liberal Metropolitan. Uh, that, that much should be clear. Uh, and it may seem slightly disingenuous if he now comes across as a, as a flag-waving patriot. So I think you have to strip it back a little bit further than that and think about the types of voters that the document was aimed at winning back and that these strategies are aimed at winning back. And these are not the voters that are listening to this programme, that are paying close attention to Westminster day in, day out. And so the symbols and symbolism is a bit more ephemeral for them. And so seeing the Labour Party using these symbols is more of a subconscious um, connection rather than trying to connect very explicitly with the um, national identity of a particular Labour leader or Labour figure. And I think in that sense, it's something that the Labour Party probably needs to do at some level in order to reconnect with voters in some parts of this, con of this country. But that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, having flags on every leaflet that goes through the door and, and the other things that seem to have become part of this debate over the last couple of days. In some ways, it seems bizarre that uh, to assume that the voters will be moved by these particular things. Because if we think of the people we're talking about, uh, are they people historically? I mean, Labour has not been closely identified with patriotism, particularly in the past, and yet they voted Labour then. So it almost seems to be addressing a problem that, that, that isn't really at the core of it. Um, I think it was something that, that changed over the last 20 years. So if you go back and, and look at imagery from the Blair years and um, earlier, there's plenty of Union Jacks in all the imagery and all the pictures, um, but it isn't an explicit theme that's being written about at that time. It is the, the everyday nationalism that sociologists often talk about. Um, so I think then what happened was there was a period which Labour um, sort of almost explicitly turned away from those things that certainly was perceived as doing so during the Corbyn years. So now they're trying to reconnect with something that was implicit before, and that, I think, is, is generating some of the tension. Um, but there's, there's good evidence that actually large parts of the Labour base, large parts of the Labour voters in 2019, never mind the voters that turned away from Labour, do feel a sense of Britishness. These are not symbols that turn people off in great numbers. Um, and so there's, there's less danger there, perhaps, than people think. Yeah, I suppose there's room for, for nuance. And you touched upon it, I suppose, when you contrasted uh, sort of the Blair year, Cool Britannia use of the Union Jack with what we've seen since. I saw David Aronovich writing in today's Times that Labour should be patriotic, but about a modern Britain that can cope with its history and outward looking country rather than this nostalgic Britain that may never even have existed that we see a lot on the right um, sort of pander towards. Uh, do you think that is an achievable goal in, in an age where political messages have to be simple to get across? C is that something that Labour could communicate? I think it's something they've got to try. I don't know how successful it will be. And the, the, the problem that Labour has with this is that it always has a, another part of the party sort of wrestling against some of these things. So it does make it more difficult for them. Um, but I think it, it has to try and it has to try to 
do this in, in subtle ways. I don't think it's about standing necessarily in front of rows and rows of flags, but it's the little symbols that, that stand out to people. Um, and that it's hard to correct. Once you've done them um, in a way that people dislike, that sticks and it's hard to correct. So it's something that they need to try and get right right from the start with new leadership. Yeah, it was interesting speaking to Tom Randall just now uh, in a, a red wall seat, former, formerly Gedling, of course, in Nottinghamshire. Very sceptical, perhaps he would be, he's the Conservative MP, uh, about the chance of winning it back. But is there a wider point that actually maybe these seats aren't easily win win backable and they should be perhaps more looking towards former Tory safe seats in suburban England, a, a younger voter group, more middle class, more highly educated, more likely to have voted Remain? There is an argument about that. The problem is that there aren't that many of those seats um, that are easily winnable for Labour. Where there's, there's a lot of those seats where they don't have much presence at the moment at all, and actually they'd be more likely to be relying on a Lib Dem challenge in those seats than a challenge of their own. Um, there, there is no simple path back to power for Labour, and it's got to think about how to win over voters across the country in all different types of seats. How does that happen in principle, though? Because this is the thing. I mean, Labour gets accused of being different parties to different people. And it sort of has to be if it wants to win over these very disparate voter groups in the north, in the south, across different demographics. Uh, but, but when you run an election campaign, you have to sort of target a, a, a more uniform voter base, I, I suppose. How, how does that work? How does Labour achieve that? Well, I, I think that you might be starting from from the wrong place there in some ways because the Conservatives managed this perfectly well um, in 2019. Their voter base is very disparate on a different set of issues, but there are still big divisions within that um, um, Conservative electorate that they managed to unite. Um, And so I don't think it's an impossible thing for Labour to do, but it is a difficult thing for Labour to do. Uh, Let me ask you then about Keir Starmer himself, because he... Uh, it's been a figure that a lot of hope was put in. This would be someone who could reach out again to, to traditional Labour voters, but more widely than that. But there are some suggestions, for example, Stephen Bush in the New Statesman saying he really might not be up to the job. He, he seems to falter yesterday, for example, not getting the story right as to whether he'd supported the Europeans' medicines agency or not. People are seeing perhaps this man has feet of clay. That's something that will be revealed over over time. I mean, we're all in these extraordinary times. Taking over as a party leader is never easy. And in these times when it's very difficult to um, get airtime for, for an opposition party, you know, all across the world, um, that, that is a very difficult time. I think it's something we still need to just kind of watch and wait a little bit to see, to see how that evolves um, once something a little bit more similar to normal politics is resumed. And, and what about Labour standing in the polls at the moment? I mean, we, we've seen them sort of overtake the Tories by some measures, fall behind on others, uh, but but broadly they don't seem to be moving too much over the last few 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 weeks. Is this something that they should be pleased with, given that there's a pandemic, it's a very odd time, it may not be that we can read the normal things into polls as we otherwise would be able to? I think the polls are difficult to read at the moment, um, but one thing that I look at quite closely with polling is what's happening um, in the in the don't knows because actually that can hide quite a lot of, of volatility that those people then have to kind of make a decision when it comes to an election. And one of the things we've been seeing in those polls is that people who voted for the Conservatives in 2019 are now much more likely to say they don't know how they would vote than people who voted for Labour in 2019. 
Now, that could be really good news for Labour, or it could be really bad news for Labour. And until we actually send people to the ballot box, we won't know. Um, because it could be that those voters are, are becoming detached from the Conservatives. They were never very strongly attached in the first place. That makes them easier for Labour to win back. Or it could be what we saw in the 2017 election, where these are voters that are uncertain at the moment, but when pushed to make a choice at the ballot box, go back, go back to their original party, go back to the Conservatives, in which case the gap um, will swing towards the Conservatives um, when people actually cast votes. So it's, I think it's really hard to say which way that, that will pan out, but it's something worth watching. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.